Starting a business to me requires either tremendous courage or tremendous foolishness or a combination of both, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've done it many, many times and, you know, knowing when they're going to go well um, is something that often I did not figure out for five or six years, right? Um, knowing when they were not going well was actually a lot easier to figure out. Um, you know, I find that the early startup phase brings with it more stress, right? More stress. Um, and in some ways, because often you don't have as deep of pockets to operate on as, you know, scaling or mature, right? There's higher risk. Um, that means that every decision in some ways is, is very, very critical. How do you get? 10,000 people to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur, investor, lawyer, and author of the recently released book, The Structure of Success. Our guest has a Juris Doctor degree from Georgetown University Law Center, a Master's of Studies degree in Modern History at the University of Oxford in England, and has a Bachelor of Arts cum laude in Economics, Political Science, History, and International Studies from West Virginia University. So we've got lots of areas we can dive deep in here. He has co-founded and led multiple technology companies, including Augusta Systems, Resilient Technologies, Hexagon Safety and Infrastructure, Mile Out, and Acme General Corp. His career has also included roles in providing counsel and legal support for financial and government agencies alike. In creating the structure of success, he interviewed 100 leaders in a wide range of businesses, including tech, manufacturing, consulting, and retail, to uncover the most common causes of business failure. I have the privilege of hosting a successful entrepreneur who recently launched Initiative Labs, is an advisor and board member, who is passionate for building stronger and more resilient businesses, Patrick Esposito. Patrick, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks so much for having me. Beautiful. So you're over the other side of the world there in the USA. Uh, Tell us, where did you grow up and what was the big dream as you're running around the playground? (laughs) So, you know, to your point, I grew up in in West Virginia, which uh, if it's you know, if you know it, you probably know the song Country Roads by John Denver. Uh, if you don't know it, right, um, it uh, it is not the same as the state of Virginia, right? It's a 
it's a separate state. So it's it's a little bit of a joke uh, for those of us who are uh, who are often asked if uh, if we're from uh, near Richmond, um, which is a, the state capital of the state of Virginia, um, not uh, the state of West Virginia. But uh, anyway, if if you're unfamiliar, I highly encourage you to uh, to consider checking it out at some point. Some great uh, national parks and national recreation areas. Um, I grew up in a college town, right? So it was. Uh, the state university, West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia, um, as a result, right, had exposure to a lot of things, um, but maybe not everything, right? This is obviously pre-internet, right? So, you know, uh, um, didn't, wanted to understand how the world worked, wanted to see how places functioned, hence a lot of the uh, post-undergraduate work um, in the UK and DC, um, thought, my future was in public service, right? Wanted to do good things, um, wanted to create positive change in the world and specifically in my home state, which tends to um, have a lot of economic opportunity in front of it, uh, shall we say, as opposed to a lot of economic opportunity in it. Um, so came back, worked for the governor of the state of West Virginia and realized I fundamentally lacked temperament for public service as Patience was not something that I was given a lot of as a as a child. So from there, I sort of said, okay, well, if I lack patience, but I love change, what would be a good thing to do? And, you know, probably Craig, as as you did, I kind of latched on to the concept of business and and specifically entrepreneurial activities and growth-oriented activities. Um, was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to start a business. Um it was part family. I uh, started with my father um, and um, my then girlfriend, now wife, um, hired as as you're told not to do, friends, right first, and uh, grew a business and thought, what more would you do when you when you start a business with family and hire friends? Then go try to get some venture capital. Well, did that right, and shockingly, that worked out. Um, had a grand plan to create environmental commodity software, which in 2001, 2002, there was this thing called the Kyoto Protocol. A lot of talk that we might potentially end up very soon having you know, the opportunity to monetize good environmental decisions. Well, now, 20 years later, hey, that's a business. Then, not a great business. So <laughs> learn how to bootstrap, learn how to pivot, learn how to make adjustments. Ended up eventually growing into an early Internet of Things middleware company um, that you know we successfully sold to a, a multinational organization, Hexagon, um, and their their U.S. subsidiary. They were operating Intergraph. Um, as a result of that journey, had a spinoff that occurred um, that we you know was out of the software and in the hardware space, um, and ended up selling that to a global leader in. Um, vehicles, uh, Polaris. Um, and so had essentially two great startup opportunities and tried to decide, am I a startup person or, you know, should I be looking at another scale of business? So ended up with an opportunity to go into support a publicly traded, uh, us financial services firm, great management team, great experience. Um, realized that I loved that scale of work as much as I loved startups. And so thought, hey, what's next for me is probably trying to advise folks who are running businesses, small, medium, and large, and 
ended up advising them and actually, funny enough, circling back to the public sector world and advising some government agencies as they were trying to kick off um, new organizations inside the U.S. Department of Defense. So helped create startups essentially inside of DOD, uh, which was a pretty neat exercise. And on that 20-year journey, came up with some theories of why businesses succeed and why they fail. Um, and then to your point, Craig, did a survey to understand if my anecdotal evidence would bear validation through some empirical survey um, and found amazing alignment between the theories and the survey. And that sort of gave rise to um, the structure of success, the book. Oh, very good. Great, great insights there to your journey along the way. Now, you talked about the about being first to market in a way when you're talking about the Kyoto um, opportunity there and but it took that long like it took 20 25 <laughs> years before it really became business you know sometimes it's really good to be first to market and or fast to market so to speak and then sometimes it's good to be first to follow but then there's also <laughs> the kind of next step of waiting for maturity as things take time before they you know, grass, you know, if you look at artificial intelligence, if you got into that 60 years ago when it was first talked about, you probably wouldn't have made much of a business unless you're very in specific spaces within government, probably back in that time. Um, so it's an interesting approach, you know, if people are entrepreneurs, how do you kind of assess whether you should be trying to be first to market or whether you should be fast to follow or whether you should be patient and wait some time to delve into a specific new technology or new space. So, you know, the way I look at it is this is, you know, most businesses have a theory, right? To your point, sometimes they want to go to a market where there's no one. Sometimes they want to ride through um, as the market materializes. And sometimes they may want to enter and change existing markets. What I've found is Rather than focusing on which of those paths to follow, most of the businesses that I, at this point, advise are in some level of operations. So I try to help them make the right decisions about adjustments and pivots right, to their strategy that they already have in place. To your point, sometimes that can be changing course right, around uh, finding a new market. Sometimes that can be changing the mix of services to add something um, that actually pursues an existing market that is a supplement to their existing offerings, right? So to your point, the most important thing whenever you're making decisions either about where to where to direct a business or where to move a business, right, I've found is listening to the market signals and gathering that intelligence both from current customers, prospective customers, your team, and if you can find them, good advisors who understand markets um, that you're in. Because if you take all of that data, right, and you don't overanalyze it, but you analyze it enough to figure out what the right strategies to explore are, you socialize those concepts again with some of those voices, and then you usually find the right strategy. Mm. Okay, like that. You discussed as well around you know, doing startups at the beginning, but then going, okay, should I be playing in a different space? You know, it would be scale up or or even 
potentially looking at a business that's quite mature. Uh, for you, where have you really found your sweet spot? Or what, what do you love now? Do you like sitting more at that startup, the scale up or at the maturity level? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting you asked that and, you know, probably true to the personality many of the folks who you have had on the podcast or that listen to the podcast, I'm still not sure, right? I'm, I'm 50 years old and I still don't know what I enjoy the most. Uh, and I still don't know what I'm, I'm, I'm better at. What I will say is starting a business to me requires either tremendous courage or tremendous foolishness or a combination of both, right? Uh, you know, I've I've done it many, many times and, you know, knowing when they're going to go well um, is something that often I did not figure out for five or six years, right? Um, knowing when they were not going well was actually a lot easier to figure out. Um, you know, I find that the early startup phase brings with it more stress, right? More stress. Um, and in some ways, because often you don't have as deep of pockets to operate on as, you know, scaling or mature, right? There's higher risk. Um, that means that every decision in some ways is, is very, very critical, right? Because usually the people who you're helping the founders, the executives, the team members. I mean, look, the next paycheck may or may not already be in the bank, <laughs> right? For all of them. So there's a tremendous amount of energy, a tremendous amount of focus. Um, stressful, but great to work with folks in that space. You know, maturing businesses, I think also have an interesting dynamic because you've taken this early founding team and early set of first employees you start to try to figure out how to inject, you know, diversity in viewpoint, diversity in experience. And you have some interesting cultural challenges that you really need to navigate if you're going to get to the scaling phase, right? Mm. And so that is a very interesting part of the process. You've got that human scaling, you've got the infrastructure scaling, you've got decisions about expanding geographies, remote work. I mean, a lot of different things around how are you going to grow this business? That is fascinating. And then scaling, you know, scaling in in its own way is also very exciting because, you know, and I've had some conversations with folks around, you have to find the right growth trajectory to get on, right? You have to have that right strategy that really feels like you can really scale up or else you're going to be throwing dollars away because you're scaling up to, <laughs> to scale down. But the scaling up part to me is 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 a fascinating ride because you really start to see how much was driven by people and how much was driven by process. And if you don't have enough process, you will quickly fall, right? So what I like to tell folks who are scaling is, look, this is definitely about talent, but it's also about process. And if we can't figure out how to make sure we've written down everything that ought to be happening, we're going to stumble and fail and, and at the end of the day, probably fall apart. But if we get the processes right, it may help us to get the people right. And that's how we really end up on that scale. So look, honestly, I love all three phases, right? <laughs> they're, 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 they're all fun in their own way, stressful in their own way. And you know, if you do them right, can pay enormous dividends for the team, um, you know, the whole team in, in, the, in the business venture. All right. So if we described kind of the type of personality it requires for each one of those in say three words so i think you talked about 
the startup being around courageous, maybe foolishness. Um, but <laughs> if you want to give like, say, three key words for each one, what would they be? So, you know, it's interesting. So I guess three key words, uh, startup would probably be courage, caffeine. Um, yeah. And, and, and to your point, um, you know, honestly committed, right? You have to be committed. Um, when it comes to, you know, sort of maturing, what I would say is you, you kind of make that transition from being over caffeinated to, <laughs> to balancing it out a bit. Right. And so I would say it's 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 a very balanced approach, right? And it requires you to balance out and even out. If you're all revenue generators, you got to bring in compliance people. So I would say, you know, balanced, disciplined, and optimistic. And when it comes to scaling, right? I think that is ultra disciplined, process driven, and growth oriented. And the reason is, look, if you don't keep that growth orientation and you bog yourself down with too much process, you're going to flat right? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say off the cuff, those are probably the three sets of keywords I would throw at each. Christ, I like that. It's a great way to approach it. Now, uh, for you, you've been in, in the corporate world or in the entrepreneurial world for quite some time now. You know, for you, what, what has been your biggest aha moment along the way that you've really gone, oh, here's the game changer? So... You know, the, the biggest aha moment I had, I honestly, is that you can turn weaknesses you have into strengths if you understand them. And let me tell you what, what I mean by that. So yeah, I was I was a worrier by nature, right? Always worried as a kid, always, always worried, um, frankly, as as a as an entrepreneur, which is which is strange because a lot of entrepreneurs don't worry, right? They don't worry enough about what could go wrong. What I realized is a healthy dose of worrying, if you worry productively, can actually be the difference between putting your business on the path to success and in, and basically ensuring your business will fail. And the reason why I say that is, you know, what I did not understand when I started a business was that what produced success were the things that also, if not aligned, would force you to fail, right? And, and I'll give you an example. So, you know, the anecdotal data that I, I collected over two decades, right, of what drove success and failure that we validated through the survey basically said, look, you've got to have some type of governance structure. You've got to have a good diverse management team where everybody's aligned, both in terms of the way you communicate and the way you compensate. You've got to have a good process for looking at adjustments and pivots. You have to have a good process for looking at infrastructure investments, right, to support mature, maturation and scaling. Uh, you've got to have good formal legal documents to support how you make business decisions and how, if you have multiple partners, folks can leave the business. Um, you have to have a good process for looking at mergers, acquisitions, other types of you know exits, partnerships, et cetera. Um, and lastly, you have to look at the two things nobody likes to talk about, being prepared for disasters and doing succession planning. What was remarkable to me was how many each of those eight factors had had been the reason or reasons why companies had failed and how much when businesses said, I have those aligned well, they were positioned for long-term success or amazing access, right? Depending upon what their goal was. So I think 
long story short, what surprised me is the fact you can turn a weakness worry into a strength. And that if you apply that concept of worrying productively um, and being open to change to the way you manage your business, you can reach amazing outcomes. Um, but you've got to regularize how you are approaching those areas or other key decisions that you find in your own experience and in your own life have been important to success or failure. Look at them at least quarterly, right? To figure out what needs to change. Mm, okay. So, you know, we, you look at those different areas. If, is there any, like, is any of them have greater weighting than others or, you know, or literally could you maybe have only some of them and not the others to still be successful? So, so look, I think, you know, we tend to be by nature, I think, often impacted by the people that we work with or the people who advise us more than anything else. And if you look at, you know, six of the factors are about what you and your team decide to do about those factors, right? So, the governance team and the management team, to me, are probably the two most critical, um, and and I'll tell you why. So when I say governance, a lot of folks think about you know paneled boardrooms with uh, you know uh, a lot of formal conversations and a lot of legal formality. Um, you know, when I say governance, that's one version of what I mean. What I would say is to leaders of businesses, if you have a formal corporate style board, terrific, right? You probably have diversity of viewpoints. It's you, your co-owners, maybe some independent directors. You probably have meetings on a regular basis. You're doing a lot of the right things as long as your information you're both reviewing and discussing, you know, helps you drive the business forward. If you're not in the mode of having that formal legal structure, you know, you don't have to right? You could have an advisory board. You could have a professional services team. You could just have some friends and family that you bounce ideas off of. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. And I I did not come up with this idea, uh, nor did the folks I'm going to give credit to for exposing me to it come up with it. But two friends of mine had an environmental services firm. Um, they generally saw eye to eye, um, but occasionally they disagreed, right? Around what investments to make or you know, what opportunities to explore, what not to explore. And they came to me and said, hey, look, you know, we have a good business. Um, we have a problem though that we don't always agree. Uh, we have board meetings and sometimes we talk about the same thing from one meeting to the next and don't make a decision because we don't agree on it. Would you be interested in joining our board meetings, not joining our board? And that's an important distinction, right? Joining our board meetings so that you can be a third voice in the room to help us at least try to reach a decision on things that we have been, you know, considering for some time or that we may disagree on. And I thought, hey, you know what? I've never actually had anybody ask me to do that before. Sure. Right. So it's really an advisor by another name, right? Is is what I'm essentially being asked to do. But I am, you know, an experienced operator of businesses who can give some feedback questions um, and input to two other folks who are running a business who in their own right have been successful before that, sometimes that third voice is all you need, right? Or if you're a solo um, 
person who's the only owner, right? You feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. You know, maybe it's you grab your attorney and you grab your accountant and you grab another friend and say, you know, hey, look, once quarterly, I'd love to do a dinner, just bounce the ideas off of you of things that I'm contemplating and get your feedback on, right? And maybe you take a deeper dive later on some of them with a subset of that. But governance doesn't have to be formal. What it needs to be is that higher level thought that you can take that has, you know, the experience of running businesses to help you apply um, those insights to your business. And your management team, obviously incredibly important. While the governance folks are going to be looking strategic, management's probably going to be looking strategic and tactical, right? And every other decision, right? Whether it's how to make an adjustment, how to make a pivot, how to invest in infrastructure, um, you know, are you doing M&A? You're not doing M&A. How are you doing it if you are? Um, your disaster preparedness plans, your succession plans, all those other things are going to probably flow from the conversations with those two teams. So at the end of the day, right, people matter. Like that. That's good. So when we look at these things here, everything's talking about really internal um, internal factors, but we quite often see many companies who are really, really focused on those external factors. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. People said to me when we started Speakers Institute Corporate, you know, what was your competitive analysis and SWOT analysis like? And I went, yep. what? And they're like, but you deal in strategy. And I said, yeah, I help other people with it. But I said, for that business, we didn't we didn't want to look external. We wanted to look internal <laughs> and just focus purely on the client and not be distracted by what everyone else was doing. That's right. And, and which has really, right. really helped us be able to separate ourselves in the marketplace and provide something that's really unique and different and and kind of forward leading in the co in the corporate training space rather than just doing what everyone else was doing. Um, so there are times, you know, so for us, we just went really internal and looked at, okay, what do we need? What things do we need in place? How do we approach this? Um, but yeah, many, many will obsess over those external factors that uh, you generally you can't control and kind of consume their mind rather than focusing on what is needed in that moment. Yep. No, you're, you're, you're obviously right. And you know, I, I tend to think that it's part, you know, it's part human nature in some ways to want to say, I don't control my own destiny, right? Because then if things don't go well, it wasn't your fault, right? Um, I tend to be a believer that external factors matter, but not as much as the internal factors. And the reason I say that is, look, you know, external disasters, if you have some type of disaster plan to respond to them, you probably still have a business, right? If you have individuals either choose to depart or unfortunately meet their untimely demise, but you have succession plans, you can combat that. Um, if you have large entrants into the market where you are currently trying to scale, hey, look, that's a problem, but that may mean you need to make an adjustment or a pivot or you need to look at exiting the business through yeah. M&A, right? And to your point, external factors are things that we need to have a response to. But if we have the internal factors aligned correctly, we'll find the right response or we'll at least find a response that we can navigate to a successful outcome. Yeah, correct. So you talk a lot around things like acquisitions, mergers, exits, but there's a number of people who may just want to have their own company and not look at those. So when we're looking at creating success, 
um, obviously for someone who wants to continue to own their business long term is not looking at the acquisition um, is there anything in that space that they can consider without having to really um, you know they can grow it themselves rather than having to acquire or merge or uh, right. etc yeah I mean I mean look to to your point right there's all types of ways to have a business right some people start some people acquire some people inherit some people earn their way into owning a business and you know the most important thing that i've found on your your pathway in business is being open right being open to what can develop as a result of engaging and being present and participating in, you know, discussions, conversations, meetings. Um, you know, a, a lot of folks talk about the value of networking, and I and I think that's true. Um, but I also think it's about networking to an objective, right? And for some people, it's networking toward, you know, revenue growth. For others, it's networking toward a new business leadership right? For others, it's, you know, about networking for the sake of networking. And that's where you lose me, right? <laughs> um, is, is to your point, there's a lot of value in being connected, being connected with an eye toward the purpose that you want the, that connectivity to bear fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So in regards to disaster preparedness and management, what, what is that? What should that look like? You know, there's, um, is it, you know, a tsunami coming through? Is it more around, you know, COVID's going to hit again? Uh, what sort of things do we really need to put in place that, that makes sense? Cause we can overdo it too, right? We can keep going and going and going, but what, what, yep. what is kind of adequate in regards to disaster preparedness and management? Yeah. So, you know, what I try to tend to tell folks is, you know, my, gravitation toward disaster preparedness came from my experience working in and then later advising financial services firms in the U.S. who are heavily regulated, who have a tremendously significant requirement to document every possible scenario and then plans for operating continuously their businesses and doing tabletop exercises on a quarterly basis to make sure that those plans were solid and don't need updated. Um, not every business needs to have the same level of rigor that American financial services firms, regu <laughs> heavily regulated American financial services firms are required to have. But right, the way that I look at it is there are probably three to five risks that are pretty easy to identify that probably some nights keep you up a little bit, right? <laughs> maybe more, maybe less. It's the things that you foresee that are causing you worry, that are helping you to not sleep, you know, helping you, uh, that, that are making you not sleep well, those are the things you probably need to figure out. How do you navigate and prepare for those events? And, you know, to your point, you know, could we have foreseen a global pandemic like COVID-19? Maybe. But... I would argue I never in my mind put down global pandemic as something I really needed to prepare for from a business standpoint. However, working remotely, I did know 
we needed to prepare for. And there were a couple of things that prepared me for that. One, I was coaching um, one of my daughter's basketball teams and uh, blew an Achilles and ended up uh, surgical repair and, and out of the office for uh, a, you know almost a full month and then unable to travel right for business meetings um, for probably about two months, right? So I mean, that's a pretty significant thing when you're responsible for revenue generation and running a business. So during that period, I kind of figured out how to manage remote work, how to manage remotely, and how to actually do sales remotely. That was back in um, you know a couple couple years um, pre COVID, um, you know, two thousand, I think probably two thousand seventeen. Um, as I as I yeah late two thousand seventeen, as I think about it. So you know, moving from that sort of experience, right, which prepared me for a need, hey, anybody can go down at any time and we need to figure out how to work remotely. Ended up leading a business um, with a co-founder, um, Acme General Corps, that advises public sector organizations on ways to innovate. Um, because of the nature of where our clients were and the nature of where the talent was that we needed to recruit <clears throat> to meet those client needs, we had a very distributed workforce. So, you know, we started operations in 2018, we're growing in 19, had folks throughout the US that we needed to coordinate, manage, and, you know, engage clients um, where physical presence was not something we were always able to obtain. And we did not have large offices, right? We had folks working from home, working from small offices um, at, you know, probably roughly 10 locations around the country. For, which was for a firm that's under 20 people at that point it was somewhat irregular right but we knew how to manage remote work what we didn't know in that business was how to manage clients remotely however because we knew how to manage work remotely we could quickly apply those same lessons to managing clients remotely and so you know as far as the impact on our business right covid-19 pandemic was you know terrible for lots of people terrible for lots of businesses um, you know, tragic events, both from a human toll perspective and from businesses that went out of business. But we were ready, but not because we thought we needed to be prepared for a global pandemic. We were ready because we had other problems that we needed to manage through, which in that case were the need for talent that was not going to be co-located with clients. That's great. And, you know, it's been able to you know, put things in place when you see something happening or about to change. I think that's really important and, you know, being prepared to adjust and be agile uh, in those moments when they do happen too. When it comes to businesses, you know, I think it's something like 50% of businesses um, end within five years of starting. Is that down more to do with regards to mindset, you know, the, the passion, the commitment, the drive, um, the energy levels, or is it more down towards the actual, you know, things that you're talking about here with regards to the governance models, the the management models, the succession planning, et cetera? So, you know, what, at least my experience, and then also the survey that I conducted tended to tell me was if it was those factors you talked about, like energy and burnout, that was a result of not having a good management team or not knowing how to make adjustments and pivots. And when you look at folks who've been both successful and had failures, 
they will tell you when they've failed, it's those eight factors. It's not a lack of energy. It's not a lack of commitment. It's not burnout. It's those, those eight areas of decisions are what impact the business. And to your point, what will wear you down if you don't have them right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, if you don't, if there's no certainty around certain things, then that's when you worry more when, and, and, you know, that, that will lead to probably those extra outcome or the, the signs and symptoms that people go, oh, you know, I'm exhausted. I just can't do this anymore. But really, if they'd put the things in place, it would have, it would have meant that they would have had different energy levels, different, um, they would have found a lot more confident, et cetera, along the way. So I think that's a, it's a really, really good lesson there to really focus on those internal factors and then that will, you know, if you put them in place and you manage them well, then that will take care of kind of the energy management long term. And, and to your point, while focusing on those areas, right, doing it in a way to the point you raised earlier where you don't over-focus, but you take a disciplined approach that says, look, I only have so much capacity to do my job. One of the things I need to do is analyze these eight areas or maybe other things that you think are important. Uh, collect the signals, attempt to see what those signals may be telling you, and then figure out what are the things that would be the priorities to change or make new um, or eliminate. Um, decide you know, three to five things that are truly priorities and worth planning around. Do some planning, figure out on those, you know, what will the requirement be? Uh, you know, probably you only have time to do plan for three and implement one or two or three, right? But certainly I tend to tell, especially small business leaders, focus on one change in time, right? Otherwise you may not accomplish anything and you may also burn yourself out. So it's an organized process, right? Of of assessing, deciding, planning, and implementing that really looks like like a funnel, right? Lots of ideas that ultimately end up being the, the small number of things you do. Hmm. Now, from time to time, we have disputes or we have issues that happen inside a company. I'm, you know, you got two sides here. One, if you're more of a, a solopreneur in a way, or you're a sole um, owner of a company, uh, then when you're looking at disputes and breakups, that's more internally with your, with your employees. Uh, if you've got multiple owners and, um, or shareholders and board, etc., then it has a different dynamic. If we're looking at those that have more than one owner, uh, may have a board of directors, etc., what sort of things do we need in place in regards to our disputes and breakups in regards to making sure we have things in place? Uh, that we can understand what well, what would be kind of like the key components that are kind of ne necessary to support a successful business. So, you know, the reason why I think it's important to look at these areas is obviously there's what would you do um, if you had the resources day one to organize great operating agreements, great bylaws, shareholder agreements, partnership agreements. Most of us get into business and say, we're not going to spend money on lawyers to give us the best documents, right? We're going to spend money on trying to make sure our business actually will be alive. So, you know, the thing that most folks do is grab some download from the internet, right? That's pretty flimsy, may not give you a lot of substance, and you may not think a lot about it. Well, if you're still operating to your point, 
a year in uh, to the business when by that point, you know, 20 plus percent have failed, right? To your point, year five, 50% have failed. Um, you know, if by year one, you're still going, you're doing pretty well, right? Um, you may not be doing that well financially, but you're doing better than a lot of folks who started a business and went out of business in a year. Um, so figure out how to get competent legal counsel to help you design operating agreements or, or bylaws or little you know, partnership agreements, depending upon the form of entity, so that you can have both well-documented the way you're going to make decisions with the owners and your co-owners, and the way that if one of you decides you need to leave or you meet your untimely demise, what's going to happen to that stake? How is it going to be valued? How does it need to be purchased? Because, you know, look, decision-making and business breakups are, are two really big things that if you all agree in writing on how it's going to be done and it's fair... Um, it's really hard to argue later that, you know, you've got an unreasonable approach to exiting the business. Right. So, yeah, no, I like that. That's good. Uh, it's good, really, really good approach into doing that. Now, when people look at businesses, um, you know, we get, we see some people who start a business because they or they, they buy a business because they're passionate about that business and then you've got those who can literally take away the passion in a way um, they're still going to have some motivation to do it uh, but they focus on businesses where there's a real high demand and relevancy for that service or product in the marketplace how important is is passion in regards to business whether there it is there's a high need in the marketplace for it or not yeah. So, I mean, look, what I will say is passion is what it takes to succeed and passion in many ways is what can drive you to make more bad decisions um, after you've made some initial ones, right? So <laughs> passion is great and passion is also not great. And so here, here's why, right? So passion, as we know, is what is going to get you, you know, waking up in the morning and thinking about this business in a way that you ought to working long hours and being comfortable with, um, you know, with that, um, passion is also, if you lean into hard to the business concepts that you started with, or that you're operating today, you may miss the signals that tell you about adjustments or pivots that need to be made. So, you know, much the way that worry can be a, a curse or a blessing passion can also be a curse or a blessing. And so what I would say is passion is what you need to, to, to launch and sustain a business, but, but rational thinking is what you need to succeed, right? So you've got to have that fuel, that energy that comes with the passion, but you've also got to temper it and say, look, I could be wrong, right? The strategy of what we were meant to grow here as a business we may do, need to fundamentally reinvent it. I mean, it may be a tweak or maybe a massive adjustment, but if we care about this business, we're going to take a step back from what we loved to look at what we need to do. So the challenges that some companies will face is that, you know, everything's going really well. Growth trajectory is working. It's great. They start to get complacent. As you know, complacency can kill in a way if we're not sort of open to uh that pivoting making those adjustments but making 
those adjustments and pivoting can be quite tricky sometimes because we're still on the upward curve in a way. Yep. Uh, or we may even be at the top, but we don't know when we're going to head down the other side or if there is an other side yet. Those, right. those decisions or those points in time in a business can, be, can either be uh, very fruitful or they can be catastrophe as well, like where they can move too fast or they move too slow. How do we kind of, how do you look at things to try and protect what is working in a way and mm -hmm. to try and keep that going, but then also be at the forefront and so you don't miss an opportunity like Kodak did? Yeah, so that, you know, the, the Kodak story is, is, is actually quite interesting, right? Um, you know, you will receive a lot of feedback from markets, right? From your customers, from your team, you know, especially your sales and service team facing those markets. Um, Kodak, I find to be a very interesting study because, you know, there's a lot of conversation around how important photography became and whether or not Kodak missed their opportunity i i would actually argue that i'm not sure kodak could have prepared themselves to be ready for what photography is today right and you know when we when we look at our our mobile devices right um what is this tool right could kodak have possibly conceived of this tool um and 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 the progression of this tool right where we went from you know the the iPod right to the to the iPhone, um, you know. At the end of the day, the business Kodak was in, I'm not sure could have been moved to become this business. Um, now, you know, when you look at that and say, okay, um, I think what it came down to is long before a question around. Kodak and how we deal with photography today, could Kodak have created Instagram? Yeah, that was a possibility, right? I don't think Kodak could have continued to have um, the platform or something that looked like the film or even printers, right? I, I think that where Kodak could have ended up is a massive leap, right, to something that was how do we use the photos, right? So you, you move from um, the mental model of could they have had the device and could they have had the photographic asset? And I think the answer is probably not, but could they have gotten to another business model that would have leveraged photography? And I think the answer to that is yes. So look, long-winded explanation when folks study the Kodak business case, the failure that I think is seen is certainly a failure, but I'm not sure Kodak could have gotten there. Could Kodak have seen where things were going and potentially started to produce applications that allowed photography to flourish? Now, that's where I think they missed the opportunity, right? It wasn't so much that they were missing, you know, the physical manifestation of the camera or the printed asset of the photo or even the display of the photo, what they were missing was the utilization of that photographic asset as something that evoked emotion. So anyway, 
Yeah, to your point, tremendous missed opportunity. Um, but I tend to look at it a little differently, maybe than than a lot of the places that cite it. Yeah, because if you look at pure digital cameras, they had a short lifespan, like right, exactly. from a mass market point of view. And it yep. was literally like the computer, the computer decided to take on the photography in the music market versus the camera taking on the computer market, which would be a whole different ball game, or or a camera taking on the music market. So it was approached from a, a very different angle. And could you do it from the other way? Maybe, but the, the yeah. chances are potentially slimmer. So, um, you said it far more elegant and succinctly than I did. So, <laughs> uh, I needed your I needed your wisdom first to be able to pull that together, uh, which is great. Now, obviously, the book has been released uh, a few months ago. The structure of success. Um, is there anything else in there that you? that you feel is really valuable for our listeners to kind of grasp um, and to really learn from? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I, I think that, you know, the, the big things we've, we've, you know, hit a bit, right, which is, you know, worrying productively, being open to change, looking at these eight critical areas and doing it in a disciplined way for, you know, assessing decision-making, planning and implementation. Um, you know, to me, a lot of what's in the book is fairly intuitive and most leaders who have have read it and circled back to me for you know help deploying it within their organization have said hey i don't know if you're trying to start a consulting business but i don't think we really need consulting and i said i agree right the whole goal of the book is basically to allow leaders to decide that they and their teammates can make the best decisions and that if you need outside folks they're often there for a limited time to either provide you know data and information to help you make better decisions, or in the case of what I do, helping them to make sure they launch the use of the tools in the book the right way, and then you're gone, yeah. right? So, you know, to your point, I think, and I emphasize this a little bit before, the two most important areas being your governance team and management team, you know, remembering that it is your team, you and your team, you need to trust yourself to make the right decisions, both about those teams and the other six areas. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? So when was the last time I did something for the first time? Gosh, that's a very good question. So um, I will tell you that the very first time that I played uh, Fortnite was uh, last night. And so uh, to your point, it's been out for a while. I obviously, being my age, have not played a lot of uh, games. My kids finally latched on to some of these things. Um, and so for the first time, I did that. Now, I, I will tell you that um, I wasn't great, but I was adequate. Uh, the first time that I did something that I failed dramatically was not too long ago when, again, my kids decided we should try snowboarding. Um, I will say I've never been in the air, landed on my chest and rolled in my life that I can remember. But there was an important, valuable lesson, right, to try new things. And no matter how hard you fall, right, to get back up and do it again. And so, again, um, you know, as far as trying new things, love to try new things. The latest new thing was Fortnite. 
the worst new thing was maybe the, uh, <laughs> the chest pounding I took from a snowboarding incident, but great lessons either way, right? You're never, uh, never too old to try new things and uh, certainly never too old to learn. <laughs> nice. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Gosh. So, you know, I, I, I will tell you the one question I would love to solve, and this is probably, a, you know, um, one of those things that I, I, I think is, is important, right, from a societal standpoint. Um, you know, the COVID pandemic has resulted in these long COVID cases, right? And I think they are very debilitating for a lot of folks. And I think when I look at the fact that, you know, we do have therapeutic options available that in theory can manage some of those symptoms, right? That to me is, you know, look, cancer is a problem that we have yet to solve. It's a massive problem. We need to solve that. But but to me, that is something that we have tried for a long time to solve beginning to make headway, but it's obviously a very significant problem. I think long COVID is one of those where the same way that we move forward to trying to figure out how to adapt to COVID, it would be great if we could, from a medical standpoint and from a regulatory standpoint, figure out how to get tools to the folks who have long COVID to improve their way of life. Oh, such an important question. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? So, you know, a, a, a great leader that, you know, I, I, I will tell you most of the great leaders that I've had an opportunity to work, you know, with whom I've had an opportunity to work have given me insights that, you know, have helped me to improve the way I function. Um, you know, my, our first independent board member you know, was great at teaching me how to run a tech startup when I had no experience running a tech startup. Um, you know, she had experience as a tech sales lead, a venture capitalist, um, tremendous mentor, um, gave me great wisdom that, you know, the reality is you're trying to sell products as a small company. No one is going to get fired for buying a product from, you know, this 10 years ago from Microsoft or from IBM, they will, however, get fired for buying a product from a small company if it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So you need to be better, right, than the market standard bears. That was a really great piece of advice. The other thing, um, you know, on sort of a, let's call it a, a, a global level, right? Melissa Mayer, um, you know, former exec at Google, uh, the last CEO at Yahoo, which which obviously a lot of folks may say, well, why are you taking advice there? She had a great insight that I've I've used ever since I read it. She said, you know, with your team, resentment is what leads to burnout. And I'm and I'm paraphrasing. But that insight led me to try to understand what each person I work with wants to protect because at the end of the day, as she was saying, you know, if you can find out what someone wants to protect, they will not resent the business, their job, or their relationship with the workplace. So what I started doing was asking folks, I can't guarantee you that work isn't going to intrude into life, right? We talk about work-life balance. That's an ideal thing. 
what I'm looking for is what is the one thing you want to protect from work intrusions, intrusions if we can do it. And for folks who have, you know, maybe it's child responsibilities, right? Drop off, homework, whatever. They can usually figure out what part of the day is most important to not miss and figure it out. For folks who are, you know, not caring for elderly parents, not caring for young children, sometimes that's harder to figure out. And I'll tell you, I started working with a team of developers and designers um, who most of them were younger. And, you know, I assumed they would tell me something like they wanted to protect, you know, some something they did during the evening, right? That was social. And, you know, most folks were willing to concede that if they needed to. Um, there was a particular, um, you know, burrito driven restaurant in um, in the in the town where I, Morgantown, where I operate this business that has a specialty burger feature every Wednesday. And I realized I was scheduling these meetings um, and would have to slide meetings because of client commitments. And I realized the team was getting incredibly agitated, right, with me and, 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 we're, you know, I said, guys, I said, I think we've figured out what is the one thing you want to protect. You want to protect Burger Wednesday. And the reality is we put a blocker on there so I couldn't schedule meetings. No one else could schedule meetings when it was important for them as a team to go get, you know, get this specialty burger on Wednesdays. And I mean, look, amazing burgers. But if you had asked me if that was what I thought needed to be protected, now I'm sure over time as they've had kids and things like that, things have changed. But what was fascinating was when we protected that thing that was important, it actually changed the dynamic of the workplace because everybody knew we spoke the same line and we understood what was important, right? For me, what I found was if I could put a hard block when I was driving my kids when they were in elementary school off at school, not be on a call while I'm doing a car line drop-off, tremendously positive outcome for their going into school, right? You can get them charged up emotionally and be ready for the day. And a tremendously better outcome for me and whoever was on the other end of a call I was doing because I could focus, right? Focus on my children, the drop off, focus on the call later. And so that was what I needed to try to protect. So I think to your point, uh, mentors and leaders and folks who impact us come both locally and globally. And, you know, insights I've received, those are two of the best insights I've ever received, I think. Mm, love it. Love it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, Patrick, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah. So the easiest place is uh, my website, patrickesposito.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, um, obviously various business websites for Initiative Labs and Acme General Corp. But uh, patrickesposito.com and my LinkedIn are probably the best ways. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You know, we've talked about the structure of success, but to really get your insights into the world of being an entrepreneur and, you know, even looking at things like scale up and start up and, and mature businesses and how we can approach them. But I really like the eight areas that we need to focus on for successful businesses around decision-making, you know, being governance models, uh, the management team, adjustments and pivots, growth and infrastructure, those b disputes and breakups, the acquisition mergers, the disaster preparedness and succession planning, uh, just really, really um, insightful because we tend to focus so much more on everything else apart from those real critical features. So I think this will really, really help many business owners and leaders to ensure that they can create successful businesses and sustain successful businesses long term. 
uh, I really I like the way that you think. It's not always kind of the what everyone's expecting, and I love that. You know, we talked about your approach to looking at Kodak and different areas as well, which is just fascinating for our listeners. So thank you very much for your time today and look forward to hearing about a successful 2024 in your world. Greg, thanks so much. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.